This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 14th of April. And on the show today, our hot topic was the good, the bad and the ugly of AI in education. As chatbots can now do schoolwork for us, we discussed that precarious balance between research and cheating. Plus, we look at how fast the school population is growing in Dubai and what it means for your child's class size. We also found out where you can buy books on a boat. And we got advice from the UAE's first Emirati pro surfer. He told us how to reach for your dreams and achieve them against the odds. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Yes, welcome back to the programme. You are listening to the Agenda, but you're also listening to our Schools and Learning special. It is Eye on Education. We do it every single week from 11am until 1pm on Friday. You might notice that that falls over the school run, and that is no coincidence. And now, uh, one of our favourite things to do on this programme is to take a look at all of the top education stories that have been crossing our desk this week to firmly bring you up to date on all the education trends. And we're going to start, as we have been quite a bit recently, with the issue of school fees, because Abu Dhabi has become the latest emirate to announce that it will allow its private schools to raise fees in the coming academic year. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton has been keeping her eye on not just this story, but all of the education headlines for the past week and joins me now in the studio. Jen, tell me more. Good morning. Good morning. Well, yes, as you see, this is an issue we've discussed quite a bit lately as Dubai and then Sharjah gave their schools permission to increase fees next year, providing they fall within certain performance criteria following their most recent inspections. Now, Abu Dhabi has followed suit with ADEC announcing on Tuesday that top performing private schools will be allowed to raise their fees by up to 3.94%. Now, we're now getting those ratings and in total, 11 schools in the capital have been deemed eligible for that that maximum rise having been rated outstanding. 37 schools rated very good will have the option to increase charges by 3.38%, while 85%, sorry, 85 individual schools rated good can increase fees by 2.81%. Interestingly, though, in the capital, the remaining lower performing schools will also be allowed to raise tuition charges, albeit by a lower amount of 2.25%. Blimey, that was a lot numbers. As in the rest of the country, that follows a three-year fees freeze, which was designed to help families cope with the COVID pandemic. We heard from our school this week, mine are going up 3%. How about you? Mine are not, actually, but... Our school's taken a bit of a, a different approach where some years it's going up and, and some years it's frozen, I think, because our school's still very new mm. and introducing new year groups as it goes. It's kind of, it's a bit less of a blanket approach for, as it's it is often, for the older schools. It's often a good idea to get in with a new school because they often give you that sort of two years grace period of, of mm-hmm. nicer school fees. I think quite a lot of parents actually move their children each two years in order to capture that offer yeah. uh, and also to sort of capture I suppose when a brand new school starts they have that surge of enthusiasm that's right yeah. yeah interesting I hadn't thought of it from that point of view in some ways because we just had a view that we put the children in the school and it's best if they stick with it because they know their friends but I know that in Dubai things are a little bit well the UAE more widely things are a bit more transient and actually that feeds into this story because it's not just the fees that are rising in the Emirates schools is it? No it seems school rules sorry not rules rules are also on the up as the UAE prepares for a new academic year in most of its schools several across the country are reporting a significant rise in registration requests indeed some of the bigger school groups say they're receiving 10, 15 even 25% increases in inquiries amid an influx of new families. Now, what's interesting is that some of those same groups say they've noticed a decline in students leaving their schools, leading to suggestions that some could see dramatically swelling student numbers after the summer holidays. Later, we'll be speaking to Claire Turnbull, who's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, to find out what exactly that means for the sector and how schools are preparing to accommodate the expansion. 
Okay, let's talk about attendance uh, alongside fees and roles increasing at the start of the school year. Uh, That's going to be happening in September for at least the British-based education system. But some schools are are already there, aren't they? Some schools have already seen the start of the new school year. The UAE's Indian curriculum schools began their 2023-2024 academic year on Monday. And Jen, I hear they're off to a great start. Indeed, while the majority, as you see, of the UAE's private schools kick off their new academic year in September for Indian curriculum facilities, that fresh start comes in April. That means thousands of children returned for the new year this week at the country's 80 or so Indian schools. And those schools are not only reporting strong enrolment, but also impressively high attendance rates. Numbers are exceeding 90% pretty much across the board, with one group reporting 98% attendance this week. It's early days, of course, but if that trend continues, it would optimistically suggest a return to pre-COVID attendance levels. Okay, let's turn our attention to our hot topic for the majority of our sort of the next two hours on this programme. It is technology. Abu Dhabi Universities unveiled new chat GPT guidelines. They're aimed at helping both students and staff navigate the minefield of artificial intelligence. That's right. And of course, whatever you make of this technology and its potential for good or ill, there's little question it's coming for all of us regardless. Now, ADU's new programme aims to find the balance of responsible and ethical use of chat GPT, acknowledging it can be a great tool to assist with research and training while also recognising the need for policies surrounding its potential for plagiarism and cheating. Shortly, we'll be speaking to the university's vice-chancellor to hear all about how the institution is treading that line and we'll also meet the founder of an app that's bringing AI tech right into the hands of students across the UAE and beyond. We're getting lots of interesting comments on this topic already. Viv, thank you for your message suggesting that AI should be able to recognize AI. Viv says from what he understands, concentrating created, uh, if you look at, sorry, I'm reading as I re- as I'm, as I speak, and as a consequence, the words are coming out in the wrong order. He thinks that there is a plagiarism checker on the horizon, although, of course, it's not technically plagiarism. Uh, plus, currently, ChatGPT will attribute quotes that haven't been made to people who haven't made them, and they'll cite sources that don't exist. So you do need to keep an eye on those glitches as well. And hopefully, for the sake of education, Viv says that glitch will remain. Another really interesting story, actually, Jen, out of the United Kingdom, is that two university students at Cardiff have a admitted, they'd actually confessed to it, that they wrote essays with the help of ChatGPT. And they, for the first time, they got first class grades for wow. those essays. They came, he basically did it. They, this Tom, not his feel, real name, is one of the students who conducted his own experiment using ChatGPT. He averages a 2-1 grade. He submitted two 2,500 word essays in January, one with the help of the chatbot and one without. And for the essay he wrote with the help of AI, he got a first. And that is the highest mark he's ever had at university. <laughs> in comparison, he received a low 2-1 on the essay he wrote without software. So if that, if anything gives you a sign that we really you know that that there there is going to have to be some regulations around the use of chat gpt absolutely people are going to have to check out how they use it i mean it it is it is so so for example the number of uses of chat gpt on the cardiff university system it basically uh in january 2023 there were more than fourteen thousand visits one month before there were zero recorded visits. Wow. So you can see how quickly ChatGPT is becoming just the norm for yes. university students. So we will be looking into that a lot more over the next half hour or so. Let's finish with a little bit of a change of tone now because there's another slightly unexpected story out of the United Kingdom this morning. That's right, because the UK government has rejected calls to ban the physical punishment of children in England. Ministers insist youngsters are already well protected in existing law, so say it should be left to parents to decide how to effectively discipline their children. But the decision puts England at odds with much of the rest of the UK, where any form of corporal punishment, including smacking, hitting, slapping and shaking, is already outlawed. Now that covers Wales, Scotland and Jersey. And children's charities in the UK say they're deeply disappointed by the decision for England to go in the opposite direction. They're now calling for an end to the legal defence of what's 
called reasonable chastisement, which leaves the door open for parents or carers in England to argue in favour of hitting their children. Now, of course, in the UAE, physical abuse, including the deliberate physical injury of a child or the willful, neglectful failure to prevent physical injury or suffering, is already outlawed. We'll be keeping an eye on that story as it develops right here on the agenda. Jennifer Crichton, thank you very much indeed for those education headlines. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the agenda. Now we are discussing the impact of artificial intelligence on education on the programme today. That is as Abu Dhabi University introduces chat GPT guidelines for their students and teachers. Now, the protocols emphasise the responsible and ethical use of the artificial chatbot and remind pupils that AI-generated content may not be accurate and should always be revised to avoid plagiarism. However, the university isn't actually seeking to curb the use of the new technology and instead say they see it as a new tool to leverage students' research skills. Now, this move, of course, comes uh, as in a breaking story today. Two Cardiff University students in the United Kingdom admitted to using ChatGPT's artificial intelligence programme to write their essays and... They got first-class marks for those essays. Now, Tom, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, that is his pretend name, uh, his his pseudonym, so to speak. He managed to get a first-class degree. It's the first time he's ever, not first-class grade, it's the first time he's ever done it. Normally, he's a 2-1 student. And he has confessed to that because he basically did it as an experiment. I mean, that is just one example of, I'm sure, many that are already taking place. And joining me now to outline their views on chatbots and their protocols is Dr. Hamid Odabi. He is the vice chancellor of Abu Dhabi University. Great pleasure to have uh, him joining us on the line. Dr. Odabi, why have you decided to issue these new regulations for students around the use of ChatGPT now? Thank you again for, for um, inviting me. Uh, the reasons are similar to what you just described. Uh, it has two parts, in my opinion. One is the ethical part. We need students to be aware these tools are here and they will stay. We cannot just blindly say we're going to ignore it. They will advance and they will contribute to student learning, to our uh, work life and to everything. So we have to make full advantage of it, but we have to make it uh, contribute the right way. So the ethical components is very important uh, to do. The other part is um, from our experience, uh, using ChatGPT and other tools are not that straightforward. If you if you approach it with no plan, with no objectives, with no context, uh, you will be uh, faced with, with uh, answers that maybe are not really what you want to, to get from. So training students how to deal with it and how to, to be prepared and think and do the work before going to, to chat uh, GPT uh, to use it. And the third one, it has used potential to uh, help us automate and digitize and advance our digital services that we provide uh, to, to our students, faculty, community. Um, and, and these are the three main, main reasons we're focusing on it, on those guidelines. There's a real sort of dichotomy at the moment. It's a really difficult situation because in many ways, ChatGPT and AI more broadly is is going to be a hugely positive development for for the educational sector, for for every sector in many ways. But then there is this fear that students will stop learning because they'll just be able to copy and paste from a chatbot. I, I mean, where do you see the line at the moment? Do you think it will be a positive or a negative development in the education sector? As you say, I think it's positive, but it comes with, with its own challenges. And those challenges, we need to find a way to deal with it. And one of it, we need to transform our teaching and learning. The old methods uh, that you give students an assignment and he goes and, and does it, and you, you give him a very specific detailed requirement that uh, students now can put it in charge of it and get the best answer, are not the best way to do it. I think we need to use university schools is the place where students can interact with each others to can collectively address 
uh, issues and come with the solutions uh, and, and using technology to support that. Uh, and the assessment, the different methods can be, can be also employed. Uh, I think the oral presentation, uh, the follow-up with the student uh, progress uh, doing things, the use in-class assessment or uh, case studies uh, it will, be, will be more, more required. And most important is student need to, to approach the assessment in a different way and the faculty as well. It's not really uh, uh, trying to see what knowledge the student have. We want to give them through the experience of solving real problems. So the important uh, that student come with the analysis and design. We used to give them a state and a statement and say, you need to do this or that, and this is the design consideration, this is the, uh, the uh, analysis consideration. No, now this is the responsibility to find those things and, and drive down the specification uh, better, better than what we used to do. I think we have to turn around our uh, engagement with the student, the way we teach, and not continue doing the old way. Now mm. people can learn anything. You don't need really a faculty to stand in front of you and explain your subject. You can find the information. But the experience that you engage with others is the more important Oddly enough, uh, so we've been getting comments in on our text lines as well. Tom Hanley's got in touch saying, we need to use more authentic assessments. And it was interesting there to hear you say that maybe we're going to have more oral assessments. And in fact, essay writing could fall out of fashion. How about, I mean, do you think ultimately that AI will catch up with itself, that you will end up with plagiarism tools that mark, you know, professors who are marking pieces of work will also be able to use, and that, and that will basically prohibit and prevent students from using ChatGPT to write their essays? I think it will. I think even the, the oral uh, uh, presentation, uh, AI maybe will develop and will get an AI that will question the student and ask them question in a video conversation based on student answers and body language and so many things, the, the AI will provide feedback to, to the student. There's no limit to what will happen in the future. But again, there are, on the other side, the students are clever and finding their own way to go around these tools and find uh, um, uh, to, to get what they want to get. So the ethical is the most important part, in my opinion. Uh, whatever we do with, with these uh, tools will, will work for some level. Turnitin now is bringing their uh, uh, tool to detect uh, AI. There are a number of detectors already in place, but they have their own, their, their own issues. And technology will, will evolve, but, but students will find their way uh, in the future as well. Away from the sort of plagiarism and, and cheating issue, obviously it's going to be an amazing research tool. Uh, my understanding is that the university is itself training ChatGPT4 on its data and services. How do you see these AI chatbots helping you as university managers ultimately? Yeah, I think one, one reason we did that, uh, as you know, ChatGPT is not always accurate. And that's our guidelines are saying exactly that. So we want the student to get an accurate information about the university, about the curriculum, about their, their study, and also on the community as well. When they interact with our chatbot, we get the accurate information uh, in place. And the other thing is we, this can accelerate lots of uh, learning for the student. For example, we developed a tool now, which using GPT trained for, that if the student submit an answer for an assignment or a question that uh, posted by the faculty, the tool will go through it and give the student with a constructive feedback and advise him of what he or she needs to do further to improve their learning on this one. And this is available 24 hours, anytime the student can, can get access to it. So it will help us improve learning. Hopefully it will help us, help us also uh, reduce the data that we need to improve our, um, our operation as well.
Fantastic to speak to you, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time. That's Dr. Hamad Odabi. He is Vice Chancellor of Abu Dhabi University right here in the UAE, speaking to us here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Absolutely fascinating conversation we're having here this morning on the good, the bad and the ugly of artificial intelligence in education. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We're discussing the impacts of artificial intelligence on education on our Eye on Education programme today. That says a UAE-based company launches an AI-powered application to help students around the world with their learning. It's called School Hack. It uses ChatGPT technology to enable pupils to ask the questions that well, the type of questions that they'd like to ask their teacher, but when they're not in school or maybe their their teacher is otherwise occupied. The platform also features interactive lessons, quizzes, games and personalised learning tools that apparently cater to the individual learning needs of each pupil. But it also will help students with things like essay writing, which in my mind immediately raises fears of plagiarism. So let's find out a bit more about how this app works. Joined in the studio now by School Hack founder and CEO, Mohammed Khaled. Thank you so much for coming in to see us. How are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. Good thank you to hear us. it. Always a pleasure. Now tell me, when did you set the app up and why? Okay, so um, I, I got the idea in January, similar time to when um, ChatGPT first come out. And I knew essentially that would eventually lead, lead to an API where developers like myself can eventually build on, on top of it. So that's when the idea kind of started. And why um, is basically because like I come from an educational background. My family's like full of educators. My mum, my auntie, they're both teachers. My granddad was a doctor. So there was a lot of educational pressure on me growing up. And um, I, I've got a degree of like dyslexia. So in school, I had a really, really hard time in school. Um, I could understand the information extremely well, maybe better than most. But when it come to relaying the message, it was like, it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So when I saw this technology, I just thought, wow, like if I had this kind of technology growing up, my life would have been like so much more easier, you know? So I thought, yeah. let me make a tailored made um, app just for students. I have to say, you turn it around pretty fast. Like it's early April now and, and ChatGPT only really came into the public consciousness in January. Yeah. Uh, actually, I suppose it came into public consciousness in November, but we, we didn't start using it till Jan. You'll know better than most. What's the difference between the old ChatGPT and the new one? What, GPT-3 and GPT-4? Yeah. Well, it's got a... GPT-4 has got more consciousness and more reasoning. So um, it's more human-like. <laughs> it's just so creepy. Yeah, it's more human-like. And it's, yeah, it's just like a, a ton smarter. And it's got the ability to interpretate pictures as well. And so. so if you want to incorporate that into your app, is the deal that you have to pay OpenAI, who own ChatGPT for? Yes, 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 okay. yes. We, to call upon the API, the amount of words that each user uses, we pay a set fee. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And I suppose, uh, I mean, endless numbers of apps and companies and websites are going to end up using it in the same way, ultimately. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so tell me, if I, I've looked a little bit online about how the app works. So if I downloaded it, yeah. and I, I suppose it depends on your age, but I'm at the age where I have to start writing essays. Yeah. As a mum, I'd be worried that my kids are going to use it to cheat. Yes, yes, Can yes. they? Um, of course, look, of course that like, people can use it to cheat, but it's like the same as using any other technology, you know, that there's going to be people that want to do the right thing and there's going to be people that want to do the wrong thing, you know. Unfortunately, that's something uh, we, we can't control, but there are like things in the background that we, are, we have put in place and are continuing to put in place to ensure that it's used ethically as possible. Okay, so ultimately, do you feel that artificial intelligence is going to be of benefit in the education sector. Absolutely, I think it's uh, it's going to be of of huge benefit. Like if I was to sit down and show you the, my emails, you know, uh, students from all around the world, they're constantly messaging me saying, you know, you helped me so much, and like these are like ethical students. They're showing different ways of how we're helping, how we're helping them. Because unlike ChatGPT, where it's just essentially just a chatbot, um, we use the technology to 
create different tools. Like I'll give you an example. So on our new, our latest update, which is actually out in two days, it's actually called Smart Media. So essentially what you can do, um, any YouTube video or Spotify podcast, you can copy the link and pull it inside of our app and you can communicate with that link with that piece of content so example if there's a two-hour lecture on let's say computer science you could actually put that link into the into our app and you can take notes via that youtube video so it's a whole new way of actually researching so it's not as a you know as simple as you know like let's write me an essay it can actually be used to research in ways that's never been done before that is very cool. I mean, I remember uh, we used to have to learn shorthand as uh, as journalists. And I, in fact, I did learn shorthand. I've literally virtually never used it because it died out around the same time. But I remember my husband introducing me to an app called Otter, which basically you can play a tape and it transcribes it for you. And the amount of time that that one free app has saved me, I mean, I can't tell you. I, I get it to transcribe entire interviews. And then you can just for the sake of a newspaper article, just take the question that you need. So I can imagine that type of facility being used in an educational platform like yours would, would be immensely useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you to, um, Smart Media. I think you'd really like it, actually. Fantastic. How about the sort of for the younger children, these, the idea that you get interactive lessons, quizzes, games, things like that? For example, my boys are under 10. Yeah. How would they use School Hack? Okay, um, another feature which will be coming out in the next couple of days is like this, like the mock test. So let's say you have to do, you've got a big exam, a big test on Shakespeare, for example. So essentially what you'll do, you'll get a PDF document, like a book of Shakespeare, and we'll, we'll use the AI to generate multiple questions. So based off of the content that you put inside of our application. So that Shakespeare book will ask you 50 questions similar to the format where you'll be taking your test, but it's all generated by AI. And uh, you can keep practicing and keep practicing and we'll, we'll grade you until, you know, by the time maybe you've done the test five, six times, by the time when you've actually come to your live test, you've answered similar questions all along. So that's one way that... Um, your son could definitely use the application. Yeah, sounds amazing. I mean, one of the things that I've heard about is, in the exam system at least, is that you now can take, an, well, I think it's quite common now, you take an exam and according to how you answer it, the system will give you different questions to sort of stretch you. Can you imagine a scenario where your app would also adapt to the user at that speed? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because like one of the absolute end goals of Schoolhack is uh like personalized learning for for each student you know we similar to how when you're on tiktok or when you're on instagram before you even get on the app they already know what kind of content content sorry you would like to like yeah they figured out the algorithm by your age and where you're from basically haven't yeah, you? and yeah, gender yeah, say yeah age where you're from gender what sort of videos you spend a, a certain amount of time on etc that's the same kind of thing we're going to be doing with school hacks so what we want to do is identify each student's strength and weaknesses and uh, make tailor-made solutions for that specific student so we get to you know that you get to learn in a way that's tailored for you yeah so for example if you're dyslexic then you would be able to focus on exercises that would help them through you know forge their path through those types of scenarios Absolutely. whereas if they're really good at maths then you'll sort of stretch them i guess yeah for sure yeah if, we, if they're really good at maths we'll um we'll stretch their brain and maybe ask them uh, something a bit harder you know and um yeah like all, all sorts of different scenarios yeah all sorts of different scenarios will Sounds be in the algorithm well, it sounds very cool indeed, both creepy and cool at the same time, like <laughs> most media does. This idea that it's, you know, that it's that it's tailor made because it knows you. <laughs> uh, but that is a good thing. I've just got to get used to it. Tailor made advertising, tailor made algorithms, tailor made education. Mohammed mm -hmm. uh, Khalid, great pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming. Yeah, talking us through that brand new uh, ed tech app that uses ChatGPT technology. It's called School Hack, and we've just been in conversation with Mohammed Khaled, who's the founder and CEO. A great pleasure to have you with us right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to Ion Education. Welcome back to the agenda. Georgia here, keeping you company all the way until one. And we are discussing the impact of artificial intelligence on education 
on the programme today and specifically the impact it's likely to have on cheating. We're calling it the good, the bad and the ugly of AI. Abu Dhabi University has introduced ChatGPT guidelines for their students and teachers and that is the good. And it couldn't come too soon because the bad... Over in the UK, one Cardiff University student has admitted to using the artificial intelligence programme to write his essay to great success. His name is Tom. Well, that's not his real name, but it's the one we're using. He managed to get a first class grade in his chatbot written essay, while his own work only got a 2-1. He has since admitted the cheating experiment, but it does show how the new tech is likely to already be well, it is already being used to power plagiarism in schools and universities. But let's find out a little bit more about, I suppose, the history of cheating in recent years. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by someone who studies the subject. Dr. Michael Draper is a professor in legal education at Swansea University in the United Kingdom. He's also an expert on essay mills and contract cheating, which, of course, used to be the way in which everybody cheated. Now, maybe they don't need to pay for it in the same way because they've got chat gpt dr draper thanks for joining us on the line how are you it's great to be with you again george and very well thank you absolute pleasure now what is extraordinary is the last time we spoke which was about six months ago chat gpt or at least it didn't really exist i mean it probably existed but the layperson you and i hadn't necessarily heard of it so no doubt the whole field the whole industry of cheating has changed entirely since the last time we spoke yeah, that's absolutely right, Georgia. I mean, yes, yeah, chatbots have been around for some time, we know, but back in November 2022, 20, uh, OpenAI, the parent company behind ChatGPT, launched GPT, uh, ChatGPT onto the uh, general public, basically, which is the 3.5 platform. In fact, now, uh, last month, they launched 4.0, so things are happening very quickly in this area, as you point out. Do you think the education sector is keeping up? I mean, as you just heard in my uh, introduction, Abu Dhabi University has introduced its chatbot guidelines, but there aren't sort of overarching plagiarism tools that everyone can use yet, are there? No. In terms of detection, um, detection tools are trying to catch up with the way that uh, uh, the, the basically the, the new form of large language models are actually working. Uh, so it is a bit of an arms race in terms of detection. Uh, in, in terms of what we're doing in terms of instructing our students and staff, uh, I think globally people are trying to get their act together quite quickly, given that this exploded, as you pointed out, onto the public consciousness only in November of last year. And so that's basically halfway through our academic term. So trying to get policies and regulations and guidance in place has been... Uh, very much a rapid response to to the particular issue. Now, I know that you're an expert on essay mills. That's people who write loads of essays for you and sort of contract cheating, same vibe. You can get someone to write your dissertation for you and and just pay them. Do you think that, uh, I I mean, how many people were using those pre-chat GPT? How many people do you think were cheating? Well, well, that's a very good question. I mean, we, we did do studies, of course, and there have been studies which suggested around 15% of students who self-declared uh, globally said they were actually using essay uh, mills. And that's self-declared, of course. Now, the reality was it was likely to be much higher than 15%, probably around 20, 25%. Who knows? Because you're relying upon students to tell you. So there was a quite a significant number of using essay mills and still are. And the reason why, George, I need to point this out, is that GPT and chat GPT basically is not artificial intelligence. It's artificial dumb. It doesn't think. It doesn't basically create. It basically regurgitates information from its database, and it gets things badly wrong. Uh, OpenAI, the parent company, call this hallucination. So it hallucinates facts. It hallucinates references. In other words, it lies. It makes things up which means that students need to be aware that if they do use these particular uh, pieces of software, that they're not actually dealing with an intelligent uh, piece of software. They're dealing with something which uses a statistical model of probability to guess what the next text or, or word should be in a sentence, and it gets things wrong. Whereas essay mills will actually guarantee, and I'm not plugging essay mills here, of course, 
but they, they, they do give you a, a piece of work which is uh, accurate uh, to a greater extent than uh, what ChatGPT can produce. Okay, so they're not out of business, these SA mills. They're not out of business yet. Do you think conceivably, though, they could be in the future? Well, I suspect they're using GPT themselves to produce the work yeah. because it's far quicker. And what they can do, as I've just said, is they can refine the work to make sure it is accurate. Whereas if you use GPT as a student, you really have to know your subject well enough to actually determine whether what you've actually been given by the piece of software is actually accurate. Uh, and if you don't have that confidence, you're going to be submitting something which is badly wrong uh, and might end up failing, or you could end up passing, or as you pointed out, the guy from Cardiff who did that experiment may get a very good mark, but it's a bit of a lottery. How many students, I mean, I'm asking you to put a figure on this, but, but do you think realistically by the time we get to the end of this academic year, the universities won't have caught up fast enough? Do you think some people might get their degrees this year thanks to a chatbot? Uh, I suspect so. Um, I, I think I think people also get their degrees thanks to essay mills as well, because detection is always challenging. We're always trying to catch up in terms of detection, in terms of software. There are detection tools out there. They are not infallible either. And so you're relying upon one academic member of the staff picking up the fact that this is possibly written either by an essay mill or written by AI. And one of the ways they do that, of course, is to look at past submissions by the students. As you said, this has only been in since November 2022. Students have already submitted work over the previous years in which we can compare that work with whatever they submit now. We can then spot whether or not there's been a, a significant change in their writing style, etc. Uh, and that will enable us to then produce basically uh, um, um, a request for a viber from the student to actually determine whether or not it's their own work. Really interesting topic. My goodness me, so many uh, more questions I could have asked you. Thank you very much for joining us on the line, Dr. Michael Draper uh, from Swansea University. He's an expert on essay mills and contract cheating, and I'm sure we'll be speaking to him again right here on the agenda on Ion Education very soon again in the future. This is Ion Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there welcome back to the program we're discussing artificial intelligence on the program today and what is absolutely fascinating is that all the tech here at the radio station is falling apart it's like the robots know that we're talking about them and they don't like it uh, right let's turn our attention away from that uh, on to another big topic on ion education today because as the uae prepares for a new academic year several schools across the country are reporting a significant rise in registration request indeed some of the bigger school groups say they're receiving 10, 15 and even 25% increases in inquiries amid an influx of new families. What's more, some of those same groups say they've noticed a decline in students leaving their schools, leading to suggestions that some educational establishments could see dramatically swelling student numbers after the summer holidays. Now, I know that some schools have waiting lists, not all of them, but some do. Uh, and so I'm intrigued to find out the realities on the ground. Joining me now is Claire Turnbull, who's the principal of the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Of course, one of the UAE's newer schools, so one that you would expect to be still sort of filling up its uh, classrooms. Uh, but maybe that's not the case now. Claire, lovely to have you join us on the line. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well indeed. And you know, I remember when your when your school first opened. I it was about two years ago now. I came for a tour. Actually, I was working for the national newspaper at the time, and I came for a tour. And I remember thinking, my goodness me, my quite new school that my kids go to isn't full up yet. How on earth are they going to fill this one? Because you know, there was just no concept of of the, the influx that we were about to see. Um, you know, a number of schools, however, facing reg seeing registrations now. How about you guys? Yeah, no, a, a really exciting times. Exciting times, I think, across the UAE for the the whole education sector. Here, here at RDS, we've we've been on a journey of of, of growth, which them are. The thing that we love is that the majority of our parents, our new parents, are coming through current parent recommendations. There is an influx of people who are coming from other countries. Again, something here at RGS that we love is that we've got a lot of people who are specifically choosing because of the wonderful options here in the UAE visa-wise 
to come from the UK because they've heard about RGS and they, you know, the combination of a school that they know and uh, um, that experience alongside the beauty of living in this country is something that's particularly attractive to them. But yes, you're absolutely right. We are, um, we, we, are uh, awash with applications and um, uh, and inquiries. Um, we are pretty well full for next year, um, which is a very exciting place to be in. And we have already made a commitment and a from day one to our parent body about our not not increasing our class sizes. So there's a you know all of that marries together to say yes, absolutely. Uh, there are still spaces um, in some year groups with us, but but interestingly, in a number of uh, of year groups, we're we're full. Do you have a, a maximum intake then that you can reach? So, how many is your peak for the number of kids to have in your classes? So we've made a commitment that we won't go above 22. Um, we've said that from the day that we opened. Um, we, you know, in some year groups, we choose to, to reduce it a bit, but 22 is our is our is our absolute maximum. Um, and uh, we have, you know, I think when you design a school and you have that depth of experience and plan carefully around all the subject specialist classrooms and the opportunities um, you design a building which is for a certain number and ours is a seven form entry um, and that's that's what we at RGS with Cognita that's what we've designed for for RGS here in Dubai. Okay, so at the moment you're nearly full uh, and yeah. and looking and looking busy. That is a pretty cool place to be in, and I think it's certainly a pretty cool place for most of the schools here. Given the transient nature of the UAE's yeah. population, is it difficult to make those types of plans? You know, was there, was there a sort of little bit, you know, nail biting experience when you first opened the school, for example? Well, when we first opened the school, um, you know, absolutely. Well, nail biting, you know. You probably know me, Georgia. I, I, I you're love not a nail biter, really. You're, you're, you're pretty, <laughs> well, you're pretty good in the face of a storm, to be honest. Well, it, it, in the nicest sense, I, I knew, uh, and we as a team knew that people would want uh, to join the RGS. It was a question of uh, time and when, wasn't it? Uh, on that side, but um, uh, so yes, you have to make decisions about staffing potentially before you've got pupils. But that's where you've got to have conviction here and so many schools out here can do that, that they know that they offer a very good outstanding experience. So therefore, you can take those those risks, because obviously now is our moment of re, uh, re-registration and re-enrollment. And uh, we've got the, the, the last few of our, our current parents um, who are in that process of re-enrollment. Uh, and that's where you just can't offer a new place to a new pupil, because obviously we would prefer potentially to keep our current parents. Um, so we just have to manage that carefully. Yeah, it must be. It must be quite a juggle. I can imagine it. Now, I mean, obviously, class sizes tend to get bigger as because one way that a school can expand, obviously, if they can't make more classes, then they can just add more pupils to the classrooms. And I know that, for example, in state schools in the United Kingdom, you can get up to 30 in a class um, Mm -hmm. just as a standard. Do bigger class sizes mean a, a lower quality of education? She said, asking the question on every parent's mind in this situation. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talked about this a few months ago, I mean, statistically, no. Um, uh, you know, the, the evidence is, is, is really clear that if you are looking at examination results, no. My argument and our philosophy here is it's just not about examination results. It's about relationships and time for teachers and pupils to spend together to really develop their holistic progress. And so, for in our minds, so you know, between twenty and twenty-four is an absolute ideal. But, um, and that's what we do at the RGS back home. Those that yeah. those are our, those are our ranges. Um, but you know, one does need to say, 
categorically that the research that's been done by educators across the world is it's about the quality of the teacher, the quality of the learning environment, um, and that the numbers come lower down the priority. It's invariably the question that parents ask us. Yeah, I mean, it's the one one I'm obsessed with. I just think that if maybe my little darling could be treated, you know, just one-to-one, if I could pay the school fees and it'd be (laughs) one-to-one, that would be my ideal scenario. I might might as well be honest. But you know what? It it wouldn't be, I would suggest that that would be a disaster for your child, potentially, unless one chooses to go down the homeschool route, etc. Because actually education is not about filling a vessel with information. It's about all the social interactions. Mm. I think education it's this holistic thing of learning to to be alongside other people, to have that emotional intelligence, that emotional resilience. All of that is equally important to the academic knowledge and actually probably I would say more important, but they're 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 in a, a vacuum. Mm. I a long time ago taught in a a very select school in the UK where for scholarship classes we did have between two and four pupils in a class and it was a remarkably difficult situation for those children to be in that is very that is genuinely very interesting indeed now what i love about talking uh, to principals at schools is that you can get a tiny little sort of anecdotal statistical microcosm of, of who's <laughs> actually coming into the country obviously rgs mm. one of the premium schools with premium fees so we'd be looking at the sort of uh, the the better off section of the of the uh, of the economic migrants coming into the country mm. right now as we all are economic migrants um wh- where are people coming from what are, what are the most popular countries that you're seeing coming to, to looking to come to RGS yeah so uh, a lot a lot from the UK yeah um, makes sense uh, you know absolutely you know as uh, as as a very much a British school not just a British curriculum school that's that that really um, is attractive we're attractive to UK parents for that um, we have so we have just over 50% of our parents are um, one at least one of them's a British passport holder and that has stayed consistently the same mm. over the last few years um, we then have 54 nationalities in the school wow. and we're thrilled by that exactly and the beauty of Dubai isn't it is that you'll you'll have multi-national within one family which brings such richness um, so we don't then have another big percentage group we've mm. got uh, people from GCC countries we've got lots of mainland Europeans I hate having to say that but you know what I mean um, Scandinavians Australians Anti- Antipodeans um, Americans uh, Korea China um, uh, and from India so whole range um and a few uh, an increase over this last uh, 18 months of people who have moved to dubai from russia but actually um uh, we don't have a second dominant group interesting that is interesting so a real yeah. mix just like the dubai yeah. the dubai we know and love uh, well thank you so much claire as always fantastic to have you join us on the line claire turnbull there the principal of the royal grammar school guildford dubai certainly it is a good news story uh, when it comes to educational establishments in this school i really do re- i remember back it was only about two or three years ago we were like how on earth are all these schools going to fill up how is arabian ranches too going to fill up and now you've got all of those properties down that road uh, completely occupied and people desperate for new places to live. It is amazing to see how just in the last three years, the UAE and specifically Dubai has developed. Long may it continue. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, and as the population of Dubai expands, schools are getting busier, Class sizes likely to increase and some of the bigger school groups say they're receiving 10, 15 and even 25% increases in inquiries amid an influx of new families. Meanwhile, no one's leaving. Uh, there's been a decline in students leaving schools and that could uh, lead to suggestions that some educational establishments could see dramatically swelling student numbers, numbers after the summer holidays. Now, it's easy to presume that bigger class sizes means less 
less teaching time or less professional attention. But is that accurate? It is a hot topic and one that producer Jennifer Crichton has been looking into for us. Joins me now in the studio. Hi, Jen. Hello. I have been looking into this and I have to say, as a parent, I went into researching it with a fairly set idea in my own head of what I believe on class sizes. I think it's much the same as you were saying, and I suspect you and I are not alone in this. There's a significant temptation for us as parents to assume that our kids are far better off in small classes. Indeed, we might presume the smaller the better, but the experts would vehemently disagree. Earlier, I spoke to Lisa Grace Wilson, the editor of Teach Middle East magazine, who said it's a bit more nuanced than our outsider point of view would have us believe. Not everything is for everyone, right? So a large class might not be of benefit to a student who really needs that one-on-one support. But not all children need that. And I think when parents are thinking about the the class sizes of, of the school at which their students attend, they need to think, does my child benefit from being in smaller settings? Do they really need that one-on-one? Or do I have a child who is fairly independent, can speak for themselves, can actually thrive in a setting where they are left to really explore and learn and experiment. And really, they only need to ask for guidance when needed. So I think it comes down to knowing that child. Now, I don't know about your boys, but my own is, shall I say, somewhat easy to distract. My assumption then would be that a bigger class might mean more opportunity for mischief. But Wilson assured me that even that is not necessarily the case, even if teachers don't really have eyes on the back of their heads. There are advantages for larger class sizes. And really, if you have skilled practitioners in front of those students, you really can get some good teaching and learning taking place. You have to understand where education is going currently. It's going more in a collaborative mode where teachers are there to facilitate, they're there to actually see to it that the students learn independently and that they're actually getting the guidance that they need. And if you have a skilled practitioner, that person can really scan that room and see where the needs are and go to the need and make sure that the students are well taken care of, even if the class sizes are a little bit larger. Of course, there's a massive difference. No matter how skilled you are, if there are 40 students in there, you are going to struggle. But if there are 23, 24 students in there and you are a really good practitioner, really good teacher, you can still give the attention when it's needed, to whom it's needed. And let me tell you something, students who are really good at collaborating will actually be able to help their peers just by being there. Not that they're going to become teachers, don't get me wrong, they're not sending them to teach their friends, but just by helping to enrich that classroom environment with with their own knowledge. Students learn those really independent skills that they need to go out into the world. So it's not all negative. It's not all bad. So that's all very reassuring. But there is a tipping point, clearly, as Lisa says, even the best teachers can't teach 40 kids at once. So with those ever-increasing school roles, might there still be a temptation for schools to maximise profits by pushing those teacher-pupil ratios just a little bit further? Apparently, no, we can put our minds at rest on that front. Lisa says maintaining the standard of education is just as important to schools in the UAE as it is to parents. So there are two sides to this. Obviously, schools will try to maximize wherever possible. But but you have to understand, when you go into the business of education, I want to be a, a real optimist to believe that even though they're businesses, they are businesses with, with conscience. So I'm sure they're not just going to pack students into a classroom like sardines to make as much money as possible. There is a balance. Obviously, they want to make sure that they have enough so that they can cover the overheads and make a profit. But they also want to do right by children and right by parents. This is just, you know, my optimism. I taught. So I taught. I'm not a journalist per se. I taught for many years and led schools for many years. And when I taught, I taught classes of 25, 24. And I stood up a lot. I walked around a lot. I could see where the needs are. I could pinpoint where my little introverts are hiding from me and not wanting to talk. I could talk to them and get them out of their shells. I could see where my students are who are struggling. And so really, if you have good teachers in the classroom, 
Even if the class sizes go up a little, I do think that schools wouldn't put them there to their disadvantage for just making profit. I really feel like schools are trying to make sure that there's a very good balance of teaching and learning quality, as well as ensuring that the operational side is also ticking along nicely. That is Lisa Grace Wilson, of course, uh, the editor of Teach Middle East magazine. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the programme. You're listening to Eye on Education on the Agenda and it is time now for an inspiring story from an extraordinary man because Emirati Mo Rama has represented the UAE internationally in three different sports, including surfing, which extraordinarily he only started to learn aged 24 at, get this, the Wadi Park Wave Pool. And that is despite personal challenges, including cancer, which could have made him give up professional sports forever. It is my great pleasure to welcome on the telephone line uh, Mo Rama, the UAE's first pro surfer. Lovely to have you with us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me over. Oh, it's great to have you on the line, and I'm really intrigued to hear about your story. I mean, first up, why surfing? Why did you start doing it at 24? And how on earth have you managed to represent the UAE on the international stage? Um, so first of all, I when I when I started, so first of all, I started my sporting career in football. And then I moved into rugby. And then from rugby, I moved to, sur- to, moved to surfing. And that's all due because I had an IBD problem. So I had something called ulcerative colitis. And that's where the main reason that I had to switch sports because I was looking for a sport where I can actually be able to use the bathroom anytime I want or for me to be able to have the freedom that I can actually like leave in the middle of the game and come back. So I found that in Rugby 7 that I can have a rolling sub. And then from there I went to surfing because an individual sport so then I can have the time and I can manage it myself. Um, I... I love sports a lot, and I am a very dedicated person in everything I do in life, whether it comes from work or it goes into sports, whatever I do. So when I started surfing, I really enjoyed it, and I put everything I have into it. And I do believe into if you are dedicated and you're putting an effort and time into what you do, then you can go very high places. You're a truly extraordinary person, just to sort of outline a few more details about your health you know you you battled against ulcerative colitis for 15 years and then back around 2019 2020 you were diagnosed with colon cancer Uh, that is not a small illness to have to overcome I mean and to be able to compete on an international level after you've struggled with cancer is, is truly extraordinary uh, I believe when you put your mind into something, then you can accomplish whatever you want. And everything we do is all in our mind and all in our head. And that's the whole purpose of me trying to prove to myself and then also prove to other people that undergoing the same surgery or going through the same medical or the same health journey that I went through, that nothing is impossible. And this, and whatever is happening to you in life, whether it's the same illness or anything happening in your life, then it should not stop you or it should not actually make you not follow your dream or do what you really like. For me, sports give me dopamine and everybody have their own dopamine in a way. And I always urge people to go and look for their dopamine, whether it is through sport or whatever it is, they have to do it. And it has to be done through search and finding and trying and error. And that's the whole purpose. And one of the things that I did after my surgery, after my colon surgery, is I did try to play 60 different sports is just to show the world that even within uh, with an ileostomy bag you are still be able to do what you like and you still can go out and do what you really enjoy and that's why I did 60 sports and now we're trying to hit 100 different sports good for you absolutely amazing uh, let me just get into the nitty-gritty slightly of how you made that transfer from wave pool which my children have been on wave pools uh, and they love it because of course there aren't many waves here in the UAE how did you make that transition from wave pool to real life waves Uh, and was it very different I'm always intrigued to know whether these pools are actually realistic it is realistic in a way but the, the, the toughest part switching from wave pool into ocean is 
how you be able to read the waves and where do you position yourself in the water and how do you be able to actually uh, fight for the wave and compete for the wave against all the other surfaces in the water. So this is the biggest challenge. But again, as I said this, um, everything that you do, you put dedication and time mm -hmm. into it and you learn new skills. So wave pool is going to teach you the basics and then also the wave pool can also teach you how to how to like do a trick and teaches you how to um, nail a trick but then the most important part about surfing is knowing your position in the water knowing how to read the wave knowing where to sit and all of those things for mm. you to be able to catch the wave so those are the only different parts of wave pool and the ocean but for the, for the wave pool the good thing is you can actually practice over and over and again exactly the same wave so if you want to nail like an air reverse or you want to do an aerial maneuver or you want to do any maneuver that you're struggling to do in the ocean the wave pool is the perfect place to learn Okay, talk to me about the other 40 sports, oh no, 60 sports that you've done so far. Which ones have you enjoyed the most? Oof, a, <laughs> a lot of them actually. <laughs> um, I enjoyed most all the sports I actually played. Uh, <coughs> I found some difficult and some of them were like a little bit sports that I wouldn't play again. But all of them were fun. Every, As I said, everybody has different skills. That's why all the different sports actually requires different kind of skills so everybody can play a sport that, they, that matches their own skills uh i've done the 30 the last 30 sports with the support my wife of course she she can see the views on instagram she filmed and she produced all the videos and she comes to me and she says like oh, you're crazy how, i don't know how you do this and we did it 30 different sports in 30 days so every day we played different sports for 30 days and it was fun I enjoyed it. How about I've seen videos of you snowboarding, with, which is another sport that you wouldn't expect the, an Emirati to excel at because, of course, slight lack of snow here in the desert. Correct. Um, since I started surfing, then I know I'm good at old board sports. So then I do skating, I do like skateboarding, snowboarding, uh, wake surfing, wakeboarding, so anything that includes board that it becomes like easy for me to pick up and I really enjoy snowboarding because it's nice and cold and something different than the heat that we live in here. So that's why I start enjoying snowboarding and I pick it up and it becomes like a habit that we have to travel and go snowboarding and travel the world and nice it's a good habit to have mo you're an absolute inspiration to all of us anyone who is feeling a bit down or under the weather uh, you're certainly an inspiration to them now thank you so much for joining us here on the agenda lovely to have you with us on dubai 103.8 that's mo rama you've just been listening to he is the uae's first pro surfer absolutely extraordinary to hear that he learned on the wadi park wave pool uh, certainly there'll be lots of kids wanting to head down there this weekend this is i on education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Hello, welcome back to Ion Education. Welcome back indeed to the agenda. Only about 10 more minutes of our programme. That's before Mark Lloyd joins us you with an hour of entertainment extra. But if you're looking for a fun academic activity over the weekend, two words that don't necessarily go together normally, why not go book shopping? Uh, because you could go book shopping this week on a boat. Uh, the world's largest floating book fair, the Logos, Logos, Logos Hope. Yeah, Logos Hope has docked in the UAE. Now, the ship, which has 5,000 titles on board, opened its doors to the public. What do you call a door on a boat? We'll find out in a second. Opened its doors to the public at Ras Al Khaimah Port this week. And it'll be in the UAE for a while. Joining me now to talk through its schedule is Silas Bosch, Advanced Preparation Project Manager for the Logos Hope. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. How are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's, it's good to be lovely here. to have you with us. Okay, first up, why a boat? I mean, I've heard of obviously bookshops and I've heard of warehouse sales, but why a boat? As you mentioned, we carry around 5,000 different titles on the ship and it's not nearly as many as the Big Bad Wolf has in their exhibition, but a boat allows us to be very flexible to go to different countries around the world and to ex give access to literature to many different people around the globe. Yeah, and actually you have got all different types of books, haven't you? I mean, obviously you're in uh, the Arab region at the moment. Do you end up stocking more Arabic language books, for example? Yes, indeed. We try to have always a stock of the language accessible on the ship in the native, well, in the native language. Um, but our main stock is English. 
But we do have Arabic books on board at the moment. I'm really intrigued. What type of books do you have? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Do you go for the bestsellers? Do you go for the low-hanging fruit, children's books? What do you have? We have a wide, uh, a wide variety of different books, from ranging from children's books, cooking books, sports, educational. We have a lot of educational books, novels, leadership and faith, all different sorts of books available. And how do you replenish it? Like, do you, do you organise for, you know, at each port you go to, are you not only selling, but you're also restocking, essentially? We usually receive containers on the ship from the US or UK or even from other countries around the world with loads of books in there. We'll actually receive a container in Dubai that will unload and load on board. Oh, how inter- I mean, and so what ports have you visited so far? I see here that uh, the boat came from Basra in Iraq before it moored here. Exactly. We don't follow a schedule. We really sail around the whole world from continent to continent. I have been in probably around 20 countries with the ship. I've started in South America. Now we're in the Arab world. We were in the Mediterranean before the Arab world. So really all around the place. Now I'm jealous of your job. You get to travel with the boat. You're not just its sort of manager here. Well, I get to travel here and then, but I usually travel ahead of the ship to prepare the arrival of the vessel to a current port, and then I'll go ahead again. That is, I mean, that is very cool. What type <laughs> of people come on board? Who wants to buy the books? A lot of different people, but we are, especially while the ship is in Dubai, it will be the Eid holiday, so we are expecting a lot of different families. We are really um, suited for families of children with all ages, um, but yeah. It must be awesome, actually, because if you (laughs) because it adds that element of intrigue. I took the children to the other to the big bad wolf uh, book sale this week straight after school. And I was like, we're going to go. We're going to go have fun. It's going to be great. We're going to go to a bookshop. And they're like, what? That's not fun. (laughs) I was like, no, no, you don't understand. You will find it fun. And the the sort of warehouse concept. They (laughs) loved that and they loved exploring. And I imagine the fact that it's on a boat would encourage children to visit as well. Do you find that that sort of little bit of intrigue? intrigue uh, keeps them entertained. Yes, that is exactly what we strive for, to show the world literature and education is not boring. It can be fun, it can be entertaining. So that's what we try to achieve with the ship. Okay, so you are actually in Ras al at the moment. What is your schedule over the next few weeks? Because you're going to leave Ras al on Sunday, is it? And come down to Dubai? On Monday. On the last Monday. open day in Ras al will be Sunday. Then on, on Monday, we'll travel down to Dubai, set everything up to open up to the public on the 18th, the Tuesday. And where will you be moored then? We will be at Port Rashid at the cruise terminal too. Okay. And then after that, are you going down to Abu Dhabi as well? After that, we'll have a maintenance period, an annual maintenance period, where we will have some technical things happening on the ship. And then we'll head down to Abu Dhabi where we'll open from the 18th of May until the 4th of June. Wow, so we've got you in town for a while. Well, in the country, at least, for a while. That would be really good fun. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Ion Education on the agenda today. Great pleasure to hear all about the Logos Hope book boat. Boat book, <laughs> however you describe it. Uh, Silas, thank you so much for your time. It's been thank lovely to have you. Thank you for having me and we're looking forward to welcoming you on board. Yeah, I'll come down. I'm all, I mean, I've spent like 300 dirhams this week on books already. Why not <laughs> spend the rest of my salary? Bring it on. Uh, Silas Bosch there, Advanced Preparation Project Manager for the Logos Hope. It is the, lar- the world's largest floating book fair. We're going to have it in the UAE for at least the next four weeks or so. So plenty of book buying opportunities for you ahead of the summer holidays. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.